Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Yvette Raphael, a regular to the podcast, she and I recorded an episode looking at COVID-19 in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly South Africa, and its effect on the community there, especially women. But then on May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was brutally murdered in Minneapolis as a white policeman knelt on him for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Um, what resulted was essentially an inflection point as Americans from all across the country, led by the Black Lives Movement, well, and indeed populations, protesters all over the world, took to the streets, mostly practicing social distancing, but to protest police brutality and the endemic racism that the United States faces. Well, Yvette and I realized that we couldn't release that episode without us first paying our respects to the family of George Floyd, but also to consider how racism uh, so endemic in so many parts of the world uh, affects global health as a global health driver itself, but also how it will affect COVID-19. So, Yvette, welcome back to A Shot in the Arm. It's great to have you here. Uh, thanks, Ben, for having me. And yes, indeed, what a sad time to be in. So uh, your reflections on the death of George Floyd, how has it affected people in South Africa? First of all, I must say it was my daughter that made me aware of what has happened. She she just frantically called me and said to me, Mommy, did you see that policeman, the white policeman kneeling on that uh, the, uh a black guy's neck for so long and the guy died. And that is when I started, uh, you know, paying attention to to what was happening. And yes, when it eventually, you know, in a few hours reached the news in South Africa, it was, I would say, triggering at most. So for other people, it was shocking. But for us in South Africa and for myself, it was a reminder of the bad history that we have with racism in this country. So it was totally, totally painful to watch and also painful to understand that in 2020, we're still struggling with racism and systemic racism at that. So uh, have there been protests in South Africa? What's happened? Yes. Um, first of all, there were one or two protests last week, and the, the, it was organized by uh, the political parties. And uh, some of the South Africans and the advocates and activists in South Africa felt that those protests are really not that genuine, because like I said initially or in our discussions, that some of them are just gimmicks and propaganda, but we want South African people to rise up organically and speak out against uh, racism and the killing of, 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 of black people. Remember, Ben, when we had our discussion with regards to the lockdown, I spoke to you. One of the things I spoke to you about was the militarization of the lockdowns and the effect it had. And in South Africa, we have more than 11 people killed during the lockdown. So like I said, it's triggering. And tomorrow, at, on the 8th of June, South Africans will be organically rising up and going to the 
U.S. embassy to, uh, to, 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 to protest and to also remind them, to remind their friend in the union building, Cyril Ramaphosa, that killing black people is no longer funny. It is no longer cute because we know it's the poor black people that suffer from this. When you are rich and you are protected by high walls in this country, are you not affected by the killing of, uh, by the killings by the military and the police? So we will be marching to the uh, to the U.S. Embassy, but our call is clear. The life of George Floyd is not in, was not lost in vain, but the U.S. Embassy must remind Cyril that Black Lives Matter, even in South Africa, and now is the time that the systems that favor um, the killing of black people are dismantled. Now is the right time. George Floyd's death, it's monumental, so that we must make sure this system falls. One of the conversations that's happened perhaps in the chattering classes here in the United States is whether there is any lesson to be learned from South Africa's experience at the end of apartheid with, say, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh, the commission, that the, the, uh, the way in which the United States dismantles its original sin of racism for over 400 or so years is going to require such a degree of work that we should look at the ways in which South Africa post-apartheid, perhaps with limited success, began to, to try and break down uh, racism. What advice would you have for us? The United States, uh, it, it, first of all, it's very humbling that the United States would look at South Africa and the truth and reconciliation. But matter-of-factly, what came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? So many black South Africans sat in the rooms with their, the killers of their children, the people who made their kids disappear. They gave, uh, you know, testimonies to where they buried them or did not tell the truth and some of most of South Africans are still struggling with that so the truth and reconciliation process at that time was what we needed to get to a point of talking however the speaking and the talking was one-sided black South Africans needed to know why you killed us and where did you bury our kids and white people never, never, never accepted and never forgave this, uh, never accepted black people's plight in telling them the truth and in accepting that they were wrong. What we have indeed here is that everybody continued going on with their lives. Black people don't know. I'm one of those people with family members that we don't know what happened to them. Disappeared into thin air during the night and the police to date they did not have an obligation to tell us what happened to our relatives. So it is not the time. Every generation then has their narratives to write. Every generation have their leaders. And I'm saying this is a pivotal moment for young people to lead us and force us as adults to 
accept the reality that what we've been doing all these years is just to cover up racism by not accepting the truth. What I like about what's happening in the US, it's multiracial, multigendered. Everybody, every color is saying enough with racism. And that is where people start to look and check themselves and say, how am I dealing with racism? What can I do to change some of the things where I have a responsibility or I am capable of changing. So that is where we are right now. South Africa is not an example. And as you can see, I'm very emotional because that TRC gave an idea that everything is okay. Meanwhile, our family members and our parents died with very, very broken hearts that they did not know where their children were buried, where they were killed, and what happened to their children. This is going to be, if following the lead of Black Lives Matter and, yeah, that passionate youth, um, African-American leadership that we're seeing here, if, if we seize this moment, uh, it's not going to be a quick fix. It's going to be a process of dismantling um, the systemic racism in, in the United States. Well, Yvette, yes. thank you so much for coming back to, uh, to make the introduction to, to the episode. Let's watch it now. And of course, as always, please do stay safe and strong. Yes, and I'm going to a protest tomorrow, wearing my mask, sanitizing my hands, and hoping my ancestors are with me. They will be. Thank you. Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast that explores issues in global health and human rights. We're bringing you this episode in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, whose members include world-class academic institutions, uh, biotech companies and technology companies, and international NGOs, all committed to improving the lives of people around the world. Well, we may be in lockdown, but we're still squirrelling away trying to find innovative ways of responding to all sorts of problems, particularly in global health. And today, I'm absolutely delighted that we're going to be joined by a doyen of community advocacy and community support. She's been working away. She might be in lockdown, but she's refusing to let that stop her from getting the message out. She's a friend of a Shot in the Arm podcast, and she actually supported the team uh, when we were in Mexico last summer for the International AIDS Society conference. We were covering all the science. Oh, my God, what a different world that was. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Yvette Raphael. Hi, Ben, and thanks for having me. Yes, great worlds apart. I can't believe I've been locked down for 60 days. Wow, today. Yvette Raphael, locked down for 60 days. That is frightening. So, so just tell me, how are things going in South Africa? How are you guys responding? Uh, communities are organizing People are surviving. And I think most importantly, South Africans are resilient. So as you know, we've, we've faced a pandemic before. So we are afraid, but we are surviving. We are surviving. I mean, I, it, it's interesting to note the response that we are, that we are taking, which is lockdown, social distancing, 
washing your hands. But for many communities, I mean, it's certainly true for people living in encampments, say, in Oakland here, but I guess it's true as well for the townships in South Africa. This must be quite a challenge. How are communities actually being able to to do the social distancing and, and you know, uh, um, keeping apart? Yes, I, th I think very importantly, and we must remember initially when we spoke about when news around lockdowns came out and how China was coping with the virus and, and the U.S. also locked down, did we understand that it would be different for countries like South Africa with a huge number of informal settlements on how people would then social distance, social distance in a shack and how they would have access to water in some places where they do not ha have water. And these sanitizers are expensive. So just by the announcement, they became expensive. So we had to rally around as communities. And I think the South African government has done a little bit of, of great work with that regards by offering people free sanitizers and putting some work into getting water in the communities. And, and what about masks? Because uh, surgical masks here have been uh, almost, uh, well, like gold, trying to get hold of them has been impossible. And, you know, we've been working with our activist colleagues in uh, Southeast Asia to bizarrely import masks into San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, how accessible have they been for folks in South Africa? Yes, I, uh, as I said, when the news came out, the surgical mask prices also went up. And early on, did the communities realize that we would have to have to make our own masks for communities. So we have projects where a lot of communities, myself and our friend Vuiseka, is endlessly working to get uh, masks to our communities. But PPE is also important for healthcare workers. And I think we are having a struggle there where community healthcare workers as well as com uh, healthcare workers are complaining that they do not have the adequate PPE to do the work they're supposed to do, screening, and as well as uh, working in hospitals. So it is a huge, huge problem. And I noticed that um, you very kindly, uh, with uh, your group of activists, produced some face masks for the uh, Black um, Caucus, Congressional Caucus, and sent to, to Barbara Lee. I know she's extremely grateful for that. Um, how many masks have you guys made? Uh, by now, we have made over 2,000 masks and we employ, you see, uh, like I say, our communities in South Africa is very resilient. So the mask that I am producing is produced by my mom and her friends. Old people are sewing in isolation. So while they are isolated, they are not bored. They are sewing and we are producing masks. And Buseka's group down in Cape Town is using unemployed young people to do the masks. And I think she has about over 12,000 masks that she has to distribute over this week. So another thing, Yvette, I mean, it's, it's 25 years also after the end of apartheid and and obviously south africa still faces extreme inequalities but i wondered how those are playing out in terms of covid-19 how are infections uh, running and perhaps we're we're sort of seeing things in a little bit of a different way uh, to uh, to to what one might expect 
Uh, yes, so so as you mentioned, there's a lot of inequalities, and there there are two um, communities where this uh, where this virus is very dangerous for, and those are people with NCDs as well as our old uh, population. So both in South Africa, you have the white old granny comfortable in the care home, and you have grannies who are caretakers of their grandchildren, who are staying in very small spaces, looking after, and that is one of the effects of HIV, and looking after their grandchildren and cannot really isolate because they are the caregivers. So it is the inequalities. I think one of the things this virus and COVID-19 has done is brought forward some of the inequalities that we've taken so long to take care of. So my mom can't self-isolate because she's staying with her two grandkids and they have to go to school and we have to plan around how my mom survives. But uh, poor white old ladies are uh, comfortable in some homes there. Yeah, and so they're in their care homes, and care homes have been a particular risk of, of COVID infection. Well, what an interesting way to, to build solidarity. It is our older women who are at the forefront yet again. Um, and of course, um, the, the black uh, grandmothers whose kids were affected and infected by HIV, they, uh, you know, they're having to act as, as parents second time around. I, I'm really interested about the way in which you've used social media to get the information out and to stay active. You've created this live stream on Facebook called Inside My Purse. Could you tell us a bit about that, what you're, what you're aiming to get out of that? Inside My Purse is a great initiative by the international partnerships of microbicide and young women and women who are mentors. So when uh, COVID started, we knew our young people would be alone and locked down. I say with parents, they don't like very much because I am a mother of two kids and I know sometimes they love me and sometimes they don't like me that much. So we knew we needed to reach out to our young people who are used to the services we give. So every Saturday, myself and the three comrades on Inside My Purse actually have sessions with young people, and we cannot have that anymore. And many of these young people are first time at home with such long hours with their parents. And also the uh, gender-based violence that happens in homes, we know happens with people close to these young people. And we needed to give, keep them connected uh, or also stay connected with these young people. So more and more are we seeing young people logging in and participating onto these uh, sessions that we have on a Friday in the afternoon at five o'clock. And it is such a beautiful space to get to speak to our young people all over the uh, we started in South Africa, but it's all over Africa now where young people are just coming in and talking about some of the issues that they have. Well, I don't know that I'm actually part of your core audience for that. But over here in California, it's a lovely way to start off my Friday morning <laughs> is to uh, watch you guys. Um, and, and, and you said it's Pan-African. What countries are, are now involved in it? Yes, we have Kenya, we have Uganda, and we have Zimbabwe who are participating in the podcast, which is so beautiful to watch. Uh, I'm excited about the next one, with the, which is S SRHR. Yes, yeah, sexual, sexual health and, and reproductive. reproductive rights. Yes. You know, yes, one yes. of the ones I thought was terrific was a young lady who I guess is South African, 
um, talking about taking PrEP for the first time. And in fact, it was her mum who introduced her to PrEP. Yes, uh, it was It was a be beautiful session with Gobisa. And also, she is the one who brought it up to me to say, you know what, Auntie Yvette, young people are going to struggle now to access PrEP because they would not be able, they'll be afraid to go out and face the police. Oh, we must talk about the militarization of these lockdowns, police everywhere bullying us. But yes, and she said we needed to talk and encourage young people to face the police and actually be able to go out and get their prep unless they know they will be abstaining during this period, which is very impossible, right? Yeah, I mean, I know that is a challenge. Um, you know, how far does social isolation go? It's it's certainly caused controversy in, in many countries around the world. Um, I mean, I'm interested at the way in which um, the, uh, the African, um, the pan-African HIV community, but, but also young folks are using social media. Um, one example is the, the MTV Sugar campaign that has these really short, uh, dramas now that are being distributed on YouTube alone together, which is basically the casts of um, MTV Sugar from uh, Lagos, Nigeria, uh, Kenya and South Africa talking and, you know, and it's it sort of it's it the drama takes place through their cell phones and you you see the circle of death when they're having problems with the uh, with the connection. But it is incredible to see how those connections are made. What made you realize that social media was a way that you could continue to reach out to people? Young people have so much time, and I knew when they are at home, they're going to have a little bit of access to internet, and they're going to be in front of their phones all the time. So first of all, that was a way. We also use WhatsApp groups. So we know young people love short messages, but they also would like to stay engaged. So yes, it was, it was a first option for us because our young people are out there scared of this lockdown and what it means. And in their families, it is such a huge problem as well, Ben. So, so just you touched on it around the human rights angle. And, and I know a number of um, uh, uh, activists involved in HIV and sexual reproductive health um, and in human rights more generally, generally have brought to the fore this question of a potential increase in domestic violence. Um, for uh, for young kids that perhaps LGBTI or, or, or questioning that um, that perhaps might find it difficult to shelter at home. What experience has South Africa had, and, and and how have you been able to bring this to the forefront? Yes, one of the things that we uh, we did is also we have the total shutdown campaign, but because South Africa has limited, actually we've. Uh, Alcohol sales is not permitted during the lockdown. Cigarette sales has not been. And what we've seen is then the numbers of, of, of reported cases has gone down during this time because we know when people are on, uh, drinking alcohol, they are able to do this. However, in spaces where um, women and children do phone the hotlines and complain about gender-based violence, we know that our our police have to act because this is in a kept area, in a kept space, and the poor, uh, uh, the women and the children will be with with the person who's violating them. So we've 
really had a huge campaign and the support of government to help with that, with the gender-based violence. So men are just afraid that once they uh, are reported for gender-based violence during this lockdown, they're going to be arrested because we all have to be safe in these uh, very uncertain times. So it sounds to me, Yvette, like you are actually praising parts of the South African government's response. Sounds to me like uh, your president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has not entirely got it all wrong. What is happening? <laughs> Most definitely, Ben. When, when somebody is doing some good work, we have to praise him. One of the things, good things that Cyril did was to lock down South Africa the time when he did. Otherwise, we would have been. And I think that's where some of us warmed up to Cyril Ramaphosa, although we are watching... The, the work that's being done with a hawk's eye. And none of this in South Africa is, is, is just the government. Civil society in this country is on point. We are watching what our government is doing. And although there are attempts to have civil society be... Um, you know, institutionalized, we still have the radicals like Yvette Raphael and Loiso Salis of Wiseka Dubula and many other women and uh, Levi Singh who are watching what this government is doing and we are putting on pressure. One of the very first things too was the issue around uh, gender-based violence. When they said lockdown, first thing we screamed was we are going to be locked down with our killers and our rapists. What is the plans of the government? When they told us lockdown, we asked them, how are we going to go and get our medication? So all of these questions were there. We made a whole lot of noise. And I think one of the things good about Cyril is his ability to listen sometimes. <laughs> So, look, I, I, I wanted to get on to HIV and, and COVID-19. But the oh. first thing is that you've got, OK, so you've got armed guards at hospitals to try and, you know, minimise contact and perhaps keep some sense of, of order. So how are people able to go into uh, hospitals, people with HIV in South Africa, to get their appointments, to get their viral load tests and to get their treatments. How is that playing out? Okay, so we have a very decentralized system, Ben. So what we have is community clinics where people living with HIV can just go into their communities. And don't think the police are at the hospitals. These guys are amongst us in our communities. One might be listening to my conversation right now. So they are amongst us. And uh, people living with HIV can uh, go and get their treatment. But like I said, it depends who is the soldier on the street, if they understand, if they see the clinic card, if they understand your appointment letter, they're able to help you. But we've heard some of our people and 11,000 people living with HIV did not go and pick up their ARVs during the lockdown. That is scary. This is 90 days, uh, I mean, 60 days of not taking your medication. So it, we have to have to get to a point where we uh, demilitarize the lockdown in South Africa so that people can move around freely again. And I hope this level three helps us with that. 60 days without HIV medication is pretty serious. The, the yes. threat of rebound of virus, of just not having drugs, uh, that are lifesavers. That that's really serious. One of the other things that watching yes, this from definitely. the US, 
um, is the, the way in which uh, parts of the government have responded to a scientist who I think is part of the COVID-19 response team in South Africa, uh, Dr. Glenda Gray. She wrote, uh, I think, some fairly critical comments about the way in which the, the country was responding. Um, and I, I believe there were some statements that perhaps she should be censored or prosecuted for that. Could you tell us what that story was? Uh, so, uh, so when we have scientists uh, in a space like South Africa where there's, there's difference, and we can see uh, COVID-19 is very politicized. Even in the U.S., it's politicized. So uh, Glenda's uh, comments were seen as anti-ANC and disrespectful of those in power. However, I, uh, we made statements as well as advocates to say we need our scientists to be able to express themselves and where they don't agree. And as you, can, as you know yourself, we've worked with... Uh, uh, Glenda for a long time in in HIV research, and she was she 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 was a little bit wrong to make examples of uh, of choosing the color of a car, which is why some people were offended because that's not the biggest of our issues. However, I, I think people are supposed to express themselves and 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 say w some of their concerns, and I think her concerns uh, were valid. However, the you know the privileged white. Uh, things do come out sometimes. <laughs> I hadn't heard about the issue about a color of her car. Uh, what was that? Yeah, she just said she would. She would love. She made an example that she would love to take her boys with when she goes and choose the color of a car, and if she loves open toe shoes over closed shoes, because the lockdown has so many restrictions. We can only buy winter clothes in winter, and we could. I could not buy a broom, and I was making jokes because I'm from Limpopo, and we are known as the magic province. And I said, "Is are they scared I will fly to Limpopo while there's a lockdown?" So yes. I couldn't. I couldn't use a broom. I couldn't buy a broom for about three or four weeks in South Africa, because oh it my was god! Not now essential. you're getting us into Harry Potter world. Um, <laughs> but look, coming back exactly. to HIV internationally, there's been quite an uproar, uh, an opposition in the HIV community about people who are making comparisons to between HIV and COVID nineteen. Um, uh, could you walk us through what that controversy is? I think the danger would be in making comparisons of a very difficult past. We know we're going to enter into those uncharted waters where we're going to have to decide who is going to get uh, the vaccines first. But people easily make the comparisons that, oh, people living with HIV and the governments know, South Africa knows best because they have been through the very difficult times of HIV. And we know it's not like that. We know that our comrades had to die first for pharmaceutical companies to make decisions on when to make drugs available. So for us, it's a painful past. We don't want those comparisons. We want you to learn from it. You, it, you have a whole textbook. Policymakers, governments have textbooks there to say, this is what we did wrong with HIV, and we're not going to make the same mistake with COVID-19. We also know our communities are seen as people who are fighters and resilient, and COVID-19 got us all surprised. I mean, on, in December, uh, 1st December, 20, uh, 
1st January 2020, did I not think I would be thinking around not being able to fly in March? And that is where we are right now. So look at that. I see two similarities. Uh, sort of as in the 1980s, the broader community is being faced with uh, having to recognize the limitations of Western medical science. You know, back then it was 15 years from the first um, emergence of Carposi's sarcoma and, uh, well, actually, uh, PCP, a form of pneumonia that was reported in Los Angeles. And then 15 years later, we actually have data that show that lives can be saved through triple combination therapy, the, the AIDS cocktail. And we all had to go through a period of, of understanding that Western medicine was not going to save us immediately. And and it seems to me that that's what the broader community is having to do now. And it fosters a, let's say, a certain humility and um, a different way of engaging with the natural world around us, a recognition that, well, perhaps apart from Donald Trump, Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin, that, you know, we're not invincible. Um, and so I see that similarity. And then the second similarity that or similarity perhaps isn't the right word, but this this form of engagement that when we knew COVID-19 finally was going to have a huge or, or potential huge threat to society, it was AIDS organisations, it was the HIV community that stood up and started providing services, uh, reaching out to the homeless. Um, and we've seen that all over the world. We see it in South Africa. And, and I wonder why that is. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yes, most definitely, Ben. And one of the things that we did not want to happen is, or we don't want to happen, is people being helpless against this invisible virus that we can't see. There's nothing that we cannot do for ourselves. So one of the things is, uh, you remember the garlic ginger and, oh. and beetroot? <laughs> yes, it made the return again. Because in South Africa, that's how you treat mild colds and mild flus and you prevent it. Or not even in South Africa, we know that uh, garlic is a natural antibiotic. So we started with those things again because we needed hope. We Otherwise, most of us would be they're just worried and watching what's going on in New York. So definitely our resilience. And you remember in the beginning spaces, Ben, when, when we had nothing, all we had was each other in organizing in our communities and talking and having those meetings where all you got was encouragement is to say, comrade, when you go back home, you be strong and you think about it, you center yourself and tomorrow we want to see you back in the support group. So I think that is again what happened here with COVID and that similarity needs to be identified as the strength of the human uh, the human. Uh, nature we we are a resilient people so when it what's the other question <laughs> no i mean let me just push you on this yvette so solidarity is one thing and and this is something that's hitting us in the united states over a certain uh anti-malarial drug hydrochloric Hydrochloroquine. Hydrochloroquine. I can't say it. Yeah, thank you. Yes. I can't say it and I'm not going to use it. But it has been <laughs> um, proposed as a uh, as a magical treatment uh, by by leaders in our government. And, and and so there's one thing about holding on to natural remedies and 
um, uh, you know, natural uh, therapeutic approaches to help build hope and build solidarity. It's quite another, rather as we saw in the early 2000s in South Africa, where it was ginger and garlic and God knows what else, as a, as actually a, a cure and a treatment for, for AIDS. And, and, and I don't know that whether South Africa has been affected by that um, uh, sort of natural medical cure in inverted commas that originated in Madagascar um, that supposedly was going to treat COVID-19, but which, frankly, um, may have been used in um, small response respiratory diseases and may have had some relieving impact, but isn't a treatment for a coronavirus. Yes, and definitely one of the things that we have to recognize is the African remedies that we are using are not poisonous. Oh my God, that unscientific decision that your president is making over there with regards to hydrochloroquine, it almost hit home because the very first time some of my family members were telling me, it works, it works in our WhatsApp groups. And I was like, wait for the science. We're not going to have a trial results by, by press release. We're going to have to wait. And exactly that. Uh, the problem is we also know that we cannot drink Domestos, guys. Come on. Should not be drinking that. <laughs> well, there's drinking bleach fluid and there's there's somehow getting light inside a body. I dread to think how our president was imagining that might happen. But but coming back to this question of solidarity and the challenges in front of us, I'd love to get your thought about the vaccines work that's happening. So at the time of recording, beginning of this week, we had some results coming out. Well, an announcement, not data presentation, an announcement from a vaccine maker, um, vaccine researcher, Moderna, that um, that said some very early data looked promising. And then immediately afterwards, two executives sold $30 million worth of shares. And, and I guess I had thought that, you know, the industry, the private sector, pharmaceutical, vaccine, diagnostic industry had really learned from the AIDS experience and was being led by a new generation of of pharmaceutical leaders that understand solidarity and that understood that if you do something and develop something in the uh, industrialized world, it has to be made available cheaply at cost, at no cost to the folks who desperately need it in the global south. And I and, and I think of the work that, say, Paul Stoffels at Johnson & Johnson is doing right now around that. But it struck me that we need to educate other um, pharmaceutical leaders, other vaccine leaders, um, I mean, because not only is it bad health, bad public health to think that, you know, your uh, vaccine or your treatment should only be available to those who don't need it. I mean, it goes, it flies in the face of the big achievements that we've had in building global solidarity between the private and the public sectors over the over the last 20 years. So I'm really keen to see you know, what you think we need to do and, and, and what we need to do to educate these new pharmaceutical leaders that perhaps haven't had this experience? Uh, very first on, we need to talk about when vaccines do become available, it will become available for everyone in the world, every person who needs it and who would like to have it. And I come back to human rights when I say that would be having access to it. But I think scientists in the chase for 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 profits have literally passed through all of the uh, the. Uh, 
some of the reg regulations when it comes to uh, finding this vaccine. I remember one day we did not know anything, and the next day on a Monday, 105 uh, organizations of or, or Big Pharma has uh, registered some of their, their vaccines or proposed vaccines. So we need to think about how what our, our plans of communities and also ask our leaders to participate in some of these global discussions. We know the President of the United States did, uh, already wanted to take over the France vaccine. I hope uh, it's not like that anymore. And they've shut him down. But it, it we remember that discussion, to, right? And it speaks to the need for these industry leaders to speak up now and say, we need to work in solidarity. So the Gileads, the Johnson & Johnsons, the GlaxoSmithKline's, they, they need to be speaking up and saying that we need to do this in solidarity. I, I, I get that. But they what won't the do things? that without community. They won't well, do without that communi without no, community. No, exactly. Communi community has to tell the big pharma what to do and what we expe uh, expect. And that's why we have GPP, you know. The greater, greater participatory factors where people who are, are community are part of the decision making. Because when you are a big farmer, you're only thinking of what you get out of it. And communities will tell you what they want out of it. So, so there is absolutely a need right now for this sort of multi-sectoral discussion. Communities, governments and the pharmaceutical vaccines and diagnostics manufacturers. And, and also to make sure that we're not getting, and we've certainly had this in the US, that some diagnostic tests, some antibody tests, um, have actually been pulled off the market because they have been proven not to be effective. So, so there, there is a need, I think, for this kind of um, uh, uh, planning, emergency planning by the various sectors coming together right now. I wanted to ask you um, uh, as well about misinformation. Here you are using technology to communicate during the period of lockdown, to educate and to mobilize. And, and I wonder uh, the extent to which you're seeing, let's say, a COVID-19 fatigue. Certainly here, at the time of recording, we're on a, a sort of a bank holiday, a memorial weekend here in the US. And the fear is that lots of people are going to go to the beach, go out to parks and have barbecues and not practice social distancing. And, and I think there is a sense that perhaps people are getting tired of, of the lockdown, that they're experiencing or they're hearing, uh, let's say, quacks, doctors or, or what have you coming up with, oh, you know, this doesn't matter. Um, we're free to reopen. We can reopen the churches, for example. And, and I wonder what steps you're taking to try and say, no, guys, we need really to focus on the science, what we know, and we need to prevent um, this second wave coming. And I guess it's a really big issue for you in South Africa as you're entering the winter months now, which could potentially put you guys at much greater risk. Yes, what, what we're currently doing, and we know, as I said earlier, our, our government has taken us down to level three, which means some activities can continue. But like I said, the leadership is great because we are not allowed to have any big gatherings. Churches are still closed because I think the, uh, we, we know our peak is coming. However, also we have to speak to our communities and we are speaking to our communities around how to keep safe. And uh, the, uh, the keeping 
putting on the masks and wearing the mask. I see it, it's very uncomfortable. It's a privileged thing in the U.S. <laughs> there are some people who think it's a privilege not to wear one. And uh, we are encouraging our communities and explaining to them we cannot afford to have COVID fatigue only 50 days thereafter. We literally, literally have to continuously educate our communities about our own responsibilities, Ben. It's important that you understand your responsibility as a human being towards other human beings who are roaming this earth and this world with you. So my own privileges and my own desires of wanting to be in uh, San Francisco now with Eddie and Huxley does not sit well with everybody else because we cannot fly. So people need to understand and we get our communities to understand. Even if you cannot have a luxury space to isolate, but if you can do that, even if the shops are open, look at times where it's more quieter and you go into the shops to prevent yourself from either spreading the disease or picking it up because we know our healthcare system will be very, very burdened. I'm actually afraid for the next few months for South Africa because we're also the only country in Africa that really gets very cold winters. And, you know, you guys have been here. <laughs> oh, I, you know, Cape Town winters, blimey. But um, I, I should say to uh, new viewers and subscribers that the Eddie and Huxley you're re referring to are the two dogs that uh, run the household that I live in. Um, I, I wanted to ask Yvette, how are you staying sane? How are you, you know, I, I've been asking in this special season of, of COVID-19, um, a shot in the arm podcasts, how people are, you know, taking care of themselves. And I'm sort of slightly afraid to ask you because when we were in Mexico recording uh, for the um, International AIDS Society conference, you were binge watching housewives, real housewives of Dallas, of Houston and, RuPaul's Drag Race. So, so what are you binge watching? What's keeping you sane? Fortunately for me, I'm not binge watching anything. I don't want to see the television because it automatically goes to CNN and I get to see the American president. What I'm going, what I'm doing now is baking for a very first time in, it's a luxury to have my two kids together at home. So the, most of the times my kids wake up with fresh bread, freshly cooked meals. My kids go to boarding school, bless them. But now they are home 60 days, uninterrupted love from myself and my partner. And for me, that is that is the best thing. I wake up, I open the curtains. I appreciate that I can see green outside my door, although it's depressing, but I just love making home for my kids and getting them to enjoy it. Because who knows, these are last moments, man. I know. So, so you're following uh, following the model of many of of many countries. I, I'm sort of thinking of Britain that's had a rush on yeast and, um, and 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 wheat flour, and everyone's making bread. God help us. So, Yvette, any par final parting thoughts for us? Um, what should we be doing? Do you think over the next few months to keep ourselves um, sane and safe during this time? Uh, love on your families. Actually, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear your mask everywhere you go. Wear your mask and when you are not in big crowds and you're at home, get your fresh air in. I think 
One of the biggest thing is also reach out to family members, reach out to your loved ones. Some of the things that keeps makes me happy is just being able to connect with my friends on Zoom calls. We have all kinds of sessions. We even have happy hour with drinking just pure water. Uh, see, we're, we're doing a lot of virtual cocktail um, on Zoom and, uh, well, I'm sure my liver won't be for, forgiving me uh, given the amount of spirits I'm drinking through that. But, uh, but yeah, well, Yvette, stay safe and strong. Love to you and your family. And um, thank you. Keep us posted on how things, how things develop. Yvette, as always, always, you are a shot in the arm. Well, that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks to Yvette Raphael from South Africa. As always, if you have any comments on the subjects we've covered or issues that you'd like us to cover in future episodes, don't hesitate to contact us through the usual social media networks, including Facebook and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. Thanks to our director and producer, Eric Espera from NewsDoc Media. Thanks to the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. And finally, thanks to you. Have a great week and a safe week.